history nerds and historians. My name is Christina and this is F-Dub History. This is where we talk about a little tip from history that's super fucked up. And yes, I said history, not mythology. I hope you all enjoyed our mythology fix last month while we talked about the Trojan War and the events that surrounded it. If y'all like that kind of, uh, I guess, like sort of deep dive into that kind of mythology, uh, where it's almost sort of like a like a book review slash synopsis, spark notes, snark notes kind of situation. Let me know. I'd be happy to do more at some point. I thought it was really fun, even though um, there were definitely times in Iliad when I like completely regretted my life choices. Well, they spent 200 pages talking about all the people who died that were never mentioned before or after and like a single battle where Diomedes kind of went crazy. But all of that is in the past because now we are on to a history series. So um, as a historian, you tend to have certain uh, periods of time that you're more interested in that you become a, a you know, specialist and subject matter expert in, um, or you can have sort of a topic that you're very proficient in. So for me, I mean, obviously history of witchcraft, that's really what I'm, what I'm big on, but I'm big on the history of witchcraft in the early modern period, which sometimes it was referred to as the Renaissance, like specifically the Renaissance is a cultural and artistic movement that happened. And the early modern period is the time period from 1485 after the War of the Roses to 1714, according to this book I have called Early Modern England from 1485 to 1714 in Narrative History. So <laughs> sometimes those terms are inter- interchangeable. But you know, if someone says they're early modernist, it means that they study the Renaissance period. So I go through like, personal phases of hyper fixation. And like I said, my my area of research is the history of witchcraft in the early modern period. So typically, it tends to like, have to do with something <laughs> related to witchcraft, in a way. Um, so the first witchcraft after in England was passed in 1542 under the reign of King Henry VIII. And allegedly, he accused at least one of his wives of being a witch, which led to my whole rabbit hole of King Henry VIII and his wives, I mean, mostly his wives and his children and some of the events that happened through the end of the Tudor era in England. And now here we are with probably like a seven part series about some of the Tudors. So yeah, we're going to talk about his wives, of which there were six. We're also going to talk about the children that resulted from those marriages. And then all of that will culminate in an episode about a mysterious murder that is still unsolved that may have been committed by an English monarch. Juicy. So this is going to be very excited. <laughs> this week we're talking a little bit about the early life of Henry, but I don't really want these episodes to focus on him. Um, I want to focus more on his wife. So much of his history focuses on him and his wife sort of become like this background character. And I want to flip that and make him the background character. So today we're mostly going to focus on Catherine of Aragon, the warrior queen of England. I am really excited about her. Um, especially because this week is Mother's Day coming up next Sunday. And there are multiple times when I would have called her mommy. Um, I do want to say just before I start, uh, out my allergies are like really kicking my ass. So uh, apologies if my voice goes out. Trigger warning before we begin this episode, we'll briefly mention war, religious discrimination, um, death, miscarriages, and loss of children, divorce, a brief mention of suicide, and that piece of garbage that goes by the name Christopher Columbus. Thankfully, he is just a cameo. But trigger warning for him because he sucks. <laughs> so without further ado, sit back, relax, and practice your, oh good God, what the fuck faces. 
So Catherine of Aragon was born December 16th, 1485 in Spain. She was the youngest daughter of Isabella of Castile, a.k.a. Isabella I of Spain. And her father was Ferdinand the Catholic, a.k.a. Ferdinand II of Spain and or the fifth of Castile. So I'm going to take a moment to talk a little bit about her parents because, I, I mean, it's really influential to how Catherine was, not surprisingly. I mean, I think we're all kind of like influenced by our parents in some way, shape or form, whether that's a, a, a good or a bad thing. So Isabella was heir to the throne of Castile and Leon, which is sort of like Western Spain. And then Ferdinand ruled over Eastern Spain, like, um, uh, like Aragon, Sardinia, Navarre, like those parts. He didn't rule over all of those areas at all times. He, you know, sort of conquered them during his reign. He also conquered parts of Italy, the cities of Sicily and Naples. So they married on October 19th, 1469, and became known as the Catholic monarchs because Catholicism was like basically their only character trait. Now, I believe that this was very much a political move because in marrying they united most of Spain except for this small region in the south that was under Muslim rule. So Isabella of Castile was able to hold on to her power though which is something that I find really really interesting about her. So it was part of their marriage contract actually that Isabella would still rule over her domain and she wouldn't sort of take a step back. During the reign of the Catholic monarch they changed laws with the intention of bettering Spain, um, whether they did or not is is subjective. <laughs> like one of the big things that they did was they took a lot of power away from like the local nobles. Um, there were sort of like these power struggles where the the monarchy didn't really seem to have much power, so they stripped a lot of the power from these lesser nobles and from these like, I mean, what what we would consider now like like governors or mayors, that kind of stuff in America. I, I can't remember what the name is that they were called in their regions, but they sort of stripped a lot of the power from them and, and gave it to the monarchy. So that's one of the, like the big things that they did as far as um, laws go. They also supported education and the arts and all of that. So um, five years after their marriage, Isabella's brother, Henry IV of Castile and Leon died. So she became queen. And then Ferdinand became Ferdinand V of Castile and Leon. But like I said, it was part of their marriage contracts that she would still have her own domain. So she did not step back and become queen consort, like a lot of women during that time period would have. It was actually Ferdinand that became her consort. And and there is a difference, obviously, or I would not have made the distinction. So queen consort is like what we'll see in England, where they have the same social rank, they have a title, they get the pretty crown, they get, you know, a, a pretty throne, they sort of rule over court, but they're not a ruler. They don't have any like political or military power. Isabella did not become a queen consort. She became a queen and she was tested as a queen in her first four years of her reign when civil war broke out over the Spanish succession, succession uh, over the Spanish succession. Uh, so to like very briefly summarize a very complex political matter in Spain, Henry IV of Castile and Leon had a daughter, but it was questioned if she was legitimate. So he sort of pushed his daughter aside and made Isabella his heir. And when Isabella became queen, people did not like this. But as a queen, 
and not a queen consort, she led the army. Now, this isn't saying that she like held a sword and rode on horseback into the midst of battle, but she traveled with every campaign. She led the field hospitals. She plotted strategy and and battle tactics and her guidance and command led to her victory. So she was a warrior queen. In 1478, the Catholic monarchs were responsible for beginning the Spanish Inquisition in which they persecuted people for not being Catholic. So like Muslims, Jews, um, scientists that refuted religious claims, but also people that they just claimed were not Catholic enough. And it led to a lot of people being killed. Historians are still kind of going back and forth about how many people were actually killed during the Spanish Inquisition, with some saying like up to 300,000 Um, but within the last 20 years or so, a lot of historians, uh, seem to say it was probably closer to like a couple thousand, which is still a lot of people, but it it doesn't seem as, as big as it's made to be when you learn about it, like in middle school and high school. In 1482, the Catholic monarchs began fighting with the Muslims who lived in Spain. And this war lasted for about 10 years until 1492, which was just a very very big year for them. Uh, In 1492, they defeated the Muslims. They ran them out of Spain back into Africa. And after they did that, they turned their sights to the Jews that lived in Spain. Uh, They forced them to either convert or leave. So you have this like whole population of Jews who moved to Africa or the Middle East and others who sort of masqueraded as Catholics and went underground with their beliefs and Judaism sort of became almost like, um, like a cult in in Spain, you know, it was very like underground, it was very persecuted, people didn't look at you very nicely if it came out that's how you were. But I mean, the the reason that most of us know the year 1492 is of course when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and Columbus never would have been able to sail the ocean blue if it wasn't for Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. So they didn't fully think that Columbus would find a passage to India, but they did think that he might find some islands or groups of people who could be converted to Catholicism. This is, is the only thing that I knew the Catholic monarchs for, and I had really strong negative opinions for them uh, about this. But they actually didn't really support how Columbus treated the indigenous people at all. In 1500, they passed a law that said that the indigenous people were, quote, free and not subject to servitude, and that Columbus and his men were only to attempt to convert them to Catholicism and not to enslave them. But Columbus and his men exploited loopholes and just basically did whatever they wanted because Columbus and his men sucked. So uh, that is all I'm going to say about that and her parents uh, before this turns into a a tangent of like 763 reasons why Columbus was garbage. (laughs) Um, I think that Isabella and Ferdinand are pretty interesting as far as monarchs go. And um, despite the things that they did in the name of God that I don't love personally, I do love a queen in her own right. And it's important to know for later, their warrior spirit really impacted Catherine. And just like her parents, Catholicism was very, very important to her. And these traits were also passed on to her daughter, who became the first successful queen of England in her own right. That also we'll kind of talk about. So let's get back to Catherine. 
So I couldn't really find a lot about her childhood in the sources that I was reading. I know there are probably biographies written about her that I just like didn't find or couldn't read. But as far as like the accessible information goes that isn't behind a paywall of some sort, she did continue her education. She was very well versed in history and arithmetic, law, philosophy, heraldry and genealogy. Genealogy was like a very big thing that a lot of the members of a monarchy or members of a royal family would look into because they had to make sure that the the alliances that they were making through marriage would be politically correct and would be something that like would continue the royal line because it was all about like you know keeping it within the royal family for the most part but it seems like honestly the only really significant thing that's talked about about her is that in 1488, at the age of about three, she got engaged to Arthur, Prince of Wales, with the Treaty of Medina del Campo. Now, Spain and England were in relatively similar places at this time. So you have like Ferdinand and Isabella that were new to the throne, had fought a war in Castile and Leon to secure a throne, and then, you know, were about to start fighting or were in the midst of fighting the Muslims in 1488 in Spain. And then you have Henry VII, who had also gotten his throne uh, relatively recently. He had won the War of the Roses, becoming the first Tudor king. So they are both formidable rulers. And it seemed like a good match. So they agreed on a 200,000 crown dowry. Now, I had to do some math, uh, which, which I anyone who's listened to a podcast in the past from me knows I I just love but I was curious as to what 200,000 crowns communicated to in like dollars or pounds so according to google a crown was equal to five shillings which was a quarter of a pound so 200,000 crowns was equal to about 50,000 pounds and according to the bank of england website that would have been about 60,301,829 pounds and 94 pence today which for my american listeners would be about 75,620,605 dollars and 30 cents so I'm always very fascinated to know what it would be today. So sorry if that like interested nobody else and you all just like glazed over and didn't listen to that last part. But um, yeah, so like $75 million plus today was what her dowry was. That is a fuck ton of money. And this was set to be paid in installments because it was a fuck ton of money. Arthur was the oldest son of King Henry VII and heir to the English throne. And Henry VII was very concerned with making sure that the Tudor line continued. He didn't want it to be a single generation dynasty, legacy, whatever you want to call it. And and he was in a good place for that because he had a son, but that son needed sons as well to continue on past that. And Catherine, at three years old, was believed to be the one to do it. Um, the fact that she was three when they got engaged wasn't weird back then, especially in royal families. Marriages were often looked at as political moves for alliances and the like. And um, Spain and England had a common enemy, which was France during this time. They weren't set to get married until they were teenagers, about 14, 15 years old. So about 11 years later, on May 19th, 1499, they were married by proxy, which made their marriage legal, but they still had to get married in the church to make it legal before God. So they then met for the first time about two years later. 
little over two and a half years later, on May 14th, 1501, when they were about 15 years old, and they were married 10 days later on November 14th, 1501, at St. Paul's Cathedral. Catherine was recorded as wearing a beautiful white satin dress that was in the traditional Spanish style with a large petticoat called a farthingale, which is one that's specifically around your hips. She wore a white silk veil with gold and pearls and precious stones and was escorted by her future brother-in-law, 10-year-old Henry Jr. According to historian Giles Tremlett, the celebrations lasted for about two weeks and included jousts and masks and banquets, and everyone was very, very happy. In December, they moved to Ludlow Castle in Shropshire. Although it was a castle, it hadn't been renovated Uh, in over 100 years, and no one had lived there for a really long time either. So it was uh, apparently like drafty and dark and parts of it were falling apart. But the, the young couple could fix it up over time. Unfortunately, that didn't really happen. And the fact that it was like dark and drafty may have contributed to what happened at the end of March and to the beginning of April of 1502, when Arthur and Catherine became extremely ill. It was dire. It, it was bad. Both looked like they were going to die. It, it wasn't known exactly what they came down with, although a lot of historians speculate that it was sweating sickness. Catherine fortunately recovered, but Arthur did not. And at 15 years old, having only been married for under five months, he died on April 2nd, 1502. And Henry VII, upon hearing the news of his first son's death, was obviously devastated, but now he was worried about the Tudor succession again. But thankfully, he was like, the gods have blessed me with a spare. And then he like pushed his other son forward, which was 10-year-old Henry. So Henry was born on June 28th, 1491. He was never supposed to be king. So he never really had that expectation put upon him. His childhood was pretty calm. Uh, He was reported as being a very happy child. And now he was next in line to the throne. And these pressures just started to be put on him, especially because he was the last son. There weren't any other sons to fall back on in, you know, Henry VII's family, especially the next year on February 11th, 1503, when Henry VII's wife, Elizabeth of York, died after an infection that she contracted during childbirth which was unfortunately really common and most likely due to lack of hygiene during that time. So Henry was now the heir to the throne and being the heir to the throne, he needed a wife or he at least needed to be betrothed because he was only 11 at this point. And Henry VII was like, isn't it convenient that we already have Catherine here? We can just like get a, get some white out and like blot out Arthur's name and 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 scribble Henry in there and uh, it, it'll be it'll be totally fine but it was not totally fine uh now most of the sources that I read sort of like glaze over this part of what exactly transpired and who said what so one source that I found says that Ferdinand and Isabella were both kind of like um <laughs> that is not how it works. We would like the dowry back, please. And then we will find her a new husband. Because in the time since the treaty was signed, when Catherine was three, Spain had grown exponentially, partially due to Christopher Columbus and other victories that they had had. So they might be successful in finding Catherine an even more advantageous match. You know, they might want to create an alliance somewhere else and and have her married 
to someone else, you know? But then there were like other sources that I read that said that Spain was anxious and were the ones who came up with the idea for Catherine to marry Henry. And then Henry VII was the one who was looking for a better match. Um, Personally, for me, I think like the earlier one kind of makes more sense, but that's something that I'll have to research more. I'm not very privy to Spanish history. Um, I, I mostly focus on like what is now the UK and the American colonies. Um, that, that tends to be like my area of focus. I'm trying to be a good historian and like expand my knowledge and all of that. But you know, I'm not very privy to Spanish history. So I couldn't tell you one way or another. But finally, regardless of who was on which side, they all gave in. And on June 25th, 1503, Henry and Catherine who was 17 at the time, became officially betrothed, but they wouldn't get married until Henry was 15, which is when he would come of age and like after the rest of Catherine's dowry was paid. Now, this new betrothal, this new treaty came with some new terms, one of them being that Catherine had no income, and she was now at the mercy of King Henry VII. And at first, he was giving her an allowance, and it was totally fine. But then on November 26, 1504, Catherine's mother, Isabella, died. Now, because of that super cool marriage agreement that said that Isabella would still have dominion over her land and that Ferdinand was not the king, but the king consort, when she died, he didn't get those lands. He didn't rule over them anymore. And she was succeeded by Catherine's sister, Juana, who was married to Philip of the Habsburg family of Austria. And his father was the Holy Roman Emperor. But Ferdinand II didn't like this, and he was attempting to take over, like, all of Spain, essentially. Like, he wanted to keep Spain unified, which caused a a bit of unrest there. And Henry VII started questioning if this alliance with Spain was really the best option for himself and for his son and for England. And uh, he kind of, like, began to start snooping around and looking at other options for Henry And as the agreed upon time came for Catherine and Henry to marry, Catherine's dowry still hadn't been paid. So they pushed it back. And in doing so, I think kind of trying to help um, push Ferdinand to pay that dowry, Henry stopped paying her salary. And she became completely destitute. And Henry VII pushed it even further when he sent money to Juana and Philip in support of their fight with Ferdinand over Spain. So he was like, kind of playing both sides. Like, if Ferdinand pays the dowry, then I'll like, I'll go ahead and like, be cool with him. But like, also, it'd be cool not to have to deal with him anymore. So like, I'll send, I'll send money to his daughter to support their, their fight. (laughs) But, uh, Based off of letters that she wrote to her father during this time, Catherine became completely destitute. Like I said, she had no servants. She had barely any clothes. She was selling her jewelry to buy a dress because she was practically naked. And Henry VII continued to not support her. And according to one documentary I watched um, that was like reading some of her letters, she allegedly became suicidal. But all of this was kind of moot, when on September 25th, 1506, Juana's husband, Philip, died. And even though Isabella ruled on her own, and, and it seemed like Ferdinand was a, was a feminist, and that Spain was an area that, that showed that, like, women can rule too, and women can be queens, and, and men can be king consorts, and, you know, let's be, like, all progressive. It was not, uh, it was not actually that way. <laughs> um Ferdinand was not a feminist, or at least not when it came to his daughter. 
And he basically had Juana confined, saying that she was insane and uh, took over her lands. And she pretty much lived in house arrest for the rest of her life. In 1508, a Spanish ambassador came to England to finish the negotiations of Catherine's marriage to Henry. And then on April 21st, 1509, Henry VII died of consumption or, uh, you know, what we would today, today call tuberculosis. And the younger Henry was crowned king, became King Henry VIII, and he was now free to choose his own wife. And he chose Catherine. Now, why did he do that? I mean, on a political stance, it's good to keep that alliance going with Spain. Spain is a formidable opponent and they have the common enemy of France. So it's good to have, you know, a, a nation that's proven itself in war that will do that. But also, I mean, not on the political side. I mean, Catherine was pretty. She was described multiple times as being beautiful, that no one can compare to her looks. Unlike the typical appearance that you would associate with people from the Mediterranean, she was described as having fair skin and reddish hair, although most of the portraits that exist of her have her hair covered. So um, as far as like portraits go, we're not totally sure, except for some when she's a child. But I read that in the first years of their marriage, Henry would kiss her and he would caress her in public and he would loudly invite his guests to look on and admire his beautiful wife. And they were a good match. Henry is described as being handsome and athletic and that everyone wanted him. Now, later on, she's not described as pleasantly. Um, The descriptions of her start to change to uh, she's not necessarily beautiful, but she's not ugly to others saying that she was ugly and deformed. But um, I mean, that could very well just be like the people who were against her describing her like that. You see a lot of that like propaganda stuff going. Um, I'm not I'm not totally sure. But it's interesting how in the beginning of her marriage, it's all positive And at the end of the marriage when she's, you know, uh, causing issues, if you want to say she's described completely different. Um, to be fair, Henry was very different uh, by that time as as well. Additionally to her being pretty, he also needed someone to be a partner for him. He was young. He was 17 when he became king and Catherine was about six years older than him. So she had more experience in court. She was raised to be a queen, whereas Henry was never intended to be king. So he wasn't raised as such, except in like the last couple years since Arthur's death. Catherine also showed strength and tenacity in those six years of waiting to marry him. She showed that she could survive the fuckery that is English politics, and and she would be a really good partner for Henry. So on June 11th, 1509, 23-year-old Catherine and 18-year-old Henry married. She was crowned as queen on June 24th, 1509, but she was queen consort. So she did act as the main Spanish ambassador to her father for a while, but she didn't rule. But regardless, they seemed like they were madly in love. And happily, a few months later, Catherine became pregnant. Henry wrote to Ferdinand II that, quote, your daughter, Her Serene Highness the Queen, our dearest consort, has conceived in her womb a living child that is right therewith. But unfortunately, this wouldn't end happily for them when on January 31st, 1510, Catherine gave birth to a stillborn daughter. Uh, It gets even sadder when she went to see doctors after they looked at her abdomen, which was still round and still looked like it was increasing in size. They told her that it seemed like she was actually pregnant with twins and miscarried one of them. 
And then in March, she went into confinement as was customary. The queen would go into isolation before birth and then like recover there as well. But her labor never began and the swelling started to go down and they realized that it most likely was just a phantom pregnancy. At the end of May, she wrote to her father that she had a miscarriage and that she thought it was an ill omen and she begged her father and Henry not to be angry with her. But Henry was actually very supportive and loving towards her. Miscarriages and stillbirths were very common during this time, especially during first pregnancies. Most people lost their first pregnancies. I mean, that's that's common today. Um, a lot of women experience miscarriages before they have a successful pregnancy. But the positive side of this is it showed that Catherine could get pregnant. In fact, she was already pregnant again when she wrote that letter to her father. And on December 31st, 1510, she went into labor and brought in the new year, giving birth to a healthy baby boy that they named Henry, who was later to be the Duke of Cornwall. Her husband, Henry, was probably the most in love with her at that moment. She had given birth to a son, which was one of the most important things to him. He he seemed to have that same fear that his father did, that he needed to make sure that the Tudor line continued. And by having a son, they could make sure that the Tudor line continued. They celebrated like crazy. They were like, bonfires and wine and cannons and pageants and banquets and jousts and he had an entire staff including four rockers whose job was literally to just rock the baby to sleep assigned to baby henry but unfortunately 52 days after his birth baby henry died on february 22nd 1511 it's not known how he died i mean sid's sudden infant death syndrome um it's still a thing even today it was very much a thing back then. Um, again, Catherine and Henry were, were very understandably devastated. But it was worse this time for Henry because this wasn't only a loss of a child, but this was an attack on his manhood. And he decided to show his manhood by be- basically like officially declaring France as their rival and allying with Spain. And he spent much of his reign fighting with France and essentially trying to like restart the Hundred Years War from 200 years earlier. Uh, In addition to allying himself with Spain, he also allied with the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in the war that they were also fighting against France. But again, they looked at the silver lining of not only could Catherine have children, but she had a healthy son. And she had gotten pregnant so quickly last time after her stillbirth that she could probably get quickly pregnant again. But on record, she didn't get pregnant again that year or the year after. But in 1513, she did become pregnant again. Henry was sure that this time it was a son. He wanted this little boy to be born to a manly king. So he went to war with France. On August 16th, 1513, Henry invaded France in what became known as the Battle of Spurs, so-called apparently, because the French knights were so taken by surprise that they fled on horseback, their spurs glistening in the sunlight. And Henry was there for a while, trying to conquer as much as he could. And while he was in France, he appointed Catherine as as the ruler, as the regent, meaning that she would rule England in his stead with, you know, a team of advisors saying, quote, Her honor and excellence could not be doubted. And while Henry was away and Catherine, a woman, the weaker sex, one that could not defend herself, let alone her country, was ruling, James IV of Scotland decided to invade England 
Only six days after the Battle of Spurs, with 30,000 troops, he captured three castles. See, Scotland and France were allies. So when Henry was attacking France, James IV decided that they would attack England. But Catherine surprised every single misogynistic prick that doubted her. She called her troops to war and she commanded the legions because of course she did. Her mother was a warrior. Why wouldn't Catherine also be a warrior? Catherine sent two armies to face the Scots head on and was gathering a third that she was planning on leading herself. And in case you forgot, she was very pregnant. Mommy, sorry. Mommy, sorry. Mommy, sorry. Mommy, sorry. Sorry. On September 9th, on Flodden Field in Northumberland, the English and the Scottish met in battle. Now, while Catherine wasn't on the battlefield, just like her mother, she was, you know, strategizing. She was appointing all of these people to fight in her stead. She appointed the Earl of Surrey, Thomas Howard, to lead the battle. And then King James himself was leading the Scottish army. It was a really tough battle. Um, Honestly, it looked like the Scottish were going to win. And then the Scottish hit a bog and basically became sitting ducks. And the English archers just began taking them out in droves, including James IV himself, who was initially hit in the fucking jaw. Because apparently I'm just now having flashbacks to the horrific war scenes from the Iliad. And once the king fell, the, the battle was pretty much lost. And there were a lot of other Scottish nobles that were killed there as well, including two abbots, two bishops, and 12 earls. And these were alongside the anywhere from five to 17,000 Scottish men who were killed, depending on what sources you read. The English on their side only lost about 1,500. One documentary that I watched on Catherine said that this was one of the greatest victories over Scotland ever achieved by the English. And it was led by a woman. And Catherine wrote a letter to Henry to let him know what happened that said, quote, this battle hath been to your grace and all your realm, the greatest honor that could be, and more that you should win all the crown of France. Your grace shall see how I can keep my promise, sending you for your banners, a king's coat. And what she meant by that last part is that she had to be convinced not to send Henry the entire fucking rotting corpse of the King of Scotland and just like settled for sending him the bloody coat to add to his banner to scare the French, to show them that the English could be victorious in battle. I'm just like simping for, for Catherine of Aragon over here. Uh, anyway, uh, but even though Catherine dedicated this victory to Henry, saying that she did it in his honor and she did it for him and, you know, going by that Catholic belief that, uh, you know, husband and wife are one and the same. So by that logic, Henry was the one who won. Henry didn't actually win this battle and he wasn't doing that well in France. He had a couple like small battles like the one we mentioned that he that he was successful in. Um, he took two small cities. Um that, that, that was about it. And and Henry was most likely uh, a little emasculated by this. Like, he didn't want a warrior queen. He wanted one that could give him sons, damn it. Uh, and eight days after the Battle of Flodden, Catherine did give birth to a son. But unfortunately, again, he died soon after birth. Um, 
I mean, most likely he was premature. Sources that I read about this came to that conclusion because Henry was still in France and was supposed to be there until the end of October. And he he wouldn't have missed the birth of his potential son. Um, I'm assuming she probably went into premature labor over the stress of winning a fucking battle against the Scottish. Like, okay, sorry. Like, you're just terrible for having a miscarriage after like defending all of England. How dare you, ma'am? The next year in November of 1514, she went into premature labor again and gave birth to another stillborn son. And I can't imagine the heartbreak that she must have felt and that they must have felt with this. Um, But it's also frustrating because like, what else was she doing during this time? I have no idea. I can't find anything. Like, it just talks about, like, she got married. She was beautiful, but maybe she wasn't. She got pregnant. No, she didn't. Uh, She gave birth, and then the baby died. And then she gave premature birth and premature birth. And, uh, you know, like, also fought a battle in there somewhat. But this is, like, they've been married for five years at this point. And, like, I have no idea what she's done during this time other than just, like, be the wife of Henry. And she had to have done stuff. She was the Spanish ambassador for a while. So like she had to be doing things, but I can't fucking find it. It's very frustrating. I'll talk more about that later. So 1514 and 1515 was, I mean, relatively a time of peace in England. For the most part, England made peace with France and Henry's sister, Mary, actually went to go marry Louis XII of France, who was 52 and she was 18. (laughs) That was nice. Catherine most likely influenced Henry to renew his alliance with Spain. And Thomas Wolsey became the cardinal and Henry's leading minister who like sort of kept him in line as king. And at the beginning of 1516 on January 23rd, Catherine's father died. Unfortunately, this death also meant that he wasn't alive to hear the news of his daughter's delivery to a healthy child on February 18th, 1516. Unfortunately for Henry, Catherine gave birth to a girl and they named her Mary, but this child did survive to adulthood, fortunately. Henry Henry wasn't as disappointed with this as you might think and as like a lot of like pop culture stuff portray it. He wasn't disappointed with it, but he was worried because there had never been an undisputed queen of England who ruled in her own right. Like, for example, in the 1100s, there was Empress Matilda. She was the wife of the Holy Roman Emperor and her father, Henry I, declared her as his heir. And when he died and she tried to take the throne, she wasn't able to actually be crowned. Um, She did rule for a few months, but she wasn't officially crowned before she was usurped by her cousin. So although she was the first, technically the first English female monarch, she's never really regarded as that. Um, We'll also talk about another instance uh, like this with Lady Jane Grey in a few episodes, who also sort of had the same thing happen. She ruled, but she wasn't crowned. So, so people, well, she wasn't like fully crowned. So people just sort of like ignore her existence as a a female ruler of England. Um, okay. So we're going to kind of like deviate here for a second. This doesn't have anything to do with England at the moment, but it's important for English history. So over in Germany, there was a monk named Martin Luther who had some problems with the Roman Catholic Church. On October 31st, 1517, he posted 95 theses of issues that he had with the Roman Catholic Church and basically started the Christian Reformation. Many of these theses were spurred on by indulgences, which were basically like 
certificates that you could purchase from the church that would buy your loved one's way out of purgatory. So Luther said that there shouldn't be authority through the hierarchy of the church. Uh, He said that there should just be authority through scripture. So to just follow what the Bible said and um, that salvation could only be granted through grace, faith, Christ, and the glory of God. And this was known as the five solas of the Reformation, but solas meaning like loan or only. In 1521, Charles V presided over a formal assembly. Charles V was the son of uh, Juana and Philip of Spain that we talked about a little bit. He became one of the most formidable rulers in in Europe. Uh, One source that I read said that he was like probably the most powerful ruler in Europe at this time. And he was also eventually to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, I believe at this point in 1521, he was the Holy Roman Emperor elect, which, um, as I understand it, like becoming the Holy Roman Emperor is a two-step process where you get elected by leaders of the empire and then like later you're officially appointed by the Pope. So I, I, in, in being the elect and later the Holy Roman Emperor, and I might be wrong in how I described that, but with this position, Charles had a duty to enforce doctrine and fight heresy and keep the church unified. So Luther refused to recant these statements and he was convicted of heresy and um, would most likely have been burned at the stake if he hadn't been kidnapped and hidden somewhere else. So While he was hiding, Luther translated the Bible into German, which was the first time the Bible had been translated in over a thousand years. And this translation that he did became really popular and he became the best-selling author in Europe in the 16th century. So he was really influential and everyone knew about him and his stance against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, He was the one who started the Reformation, but... um, He wasn't the only one who would deviate from the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So back to England in November of 1518, Catherine gave birth to another stillborn child. This time it was another daughter and this would become her last recorded pregnancy. She was now in her mid 30s and the chances of her having another pregnancy, I mean, it wasn't impossible. Uh, But it was like relatively unlikely that she would have another pregnancy, especially considering how many rough pregnancies that she had had. I mean, I feel like today, if you were to have had that many miscarriages and stillbirths and all of that, doctors would probably like advise you not to try to get pregnant anymore because there was most likely either something going on with your reproductive system or something going on with your husband's reproductive system. And it probably wasn't like the best idea to try and continue. I think I read one theory that, and I'm not a scientist uh, at all. So take all of this like with a grain of salt, but um, there are theories that say that um, Catherine could have been RH negative which if you are RH negative um, with your blood type and you become pregnant with a baby who is RH positive, your body will attack it and you will have miscarriages. Um, Also, there is a theory that, and I'm not very sure exactly what this means, um, but there are also a theory that's like relatively within the last like 10 years or so that say that... um, 
Henry may have been Kells positive. Um, so the, the same sort of thing there where like if you are Kells positive with your blood type and your partner is Kells negative, it's not going to result in, um, in a viable pregnancy. Um, and I'm curious if like this also may have factored into like later on, um, Mary, also couldn't get pregnant. She also had difficulties getting pregnant as well. Um, that is Catherine's uh, daughter with Henry. And then Elizabeth's the first, who is Henry's other daughter with Anne Boleyn. She never had any children on record. So, I mean, it could be something like with their blood type. It could be something going on with that. That would be the reason why Catherine had so many miscarriages. And also like later on, Anne had a lot of miscarriages. I, I, we, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't really know for sure, but this, these are like some theories as to why she may have had so many uh, miscarriages and why she may have had so many stillbirths and why she may have gone into labor so prematurely. There are also some historians who have found records of Catherine saying that she fasted a lot during her pregnancy, which then could mean that, you know, having somewhat of an eating disorder, um, could have led to malnutrition, which could have led to improper development of the fetus, which could have led to like her miscarriages or stillbirths. Honestly, I mean, we're never going to know the answer, but there's a lot of theories that that surround it. Uh, regardless, it was heartbreaking. And I could not imagine having so many miscarriages and so many stillbirths. And I also cannot imagine the feelings that Catherine must have had on June 15th, 1519, when Henry VIII's longtime mistress, Bessie Blount, gave birth to a healthy son that he also named Henry after himself. And then this child was given the additional name Fitzroy, which means son of the king. And Henry VIII acknowledged him as his son, but because he was still illegitimate, Henry Fitzroy would never be king, but he was acknowledged like, hey, look at me. I'm a manly man who can have sons. I'm not the one who's the problem here. It's my wife who's the problem here. And like, that's not at all what it is. But you know that that's, that's what happened. So <laughs> in... 1521, Henry said the hell with this French peace and he went to war with them again with Spain as an ally. And then after four years, he decided to turn against Spain and declare his own peace with France. So he kind of just like goes back and forth constantly. It's recorded by some that Catherine was actually really upset that she wasn't being consulted anymore with these like political decisions, which reminds me a lot of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And I wonder if like Shakespeare was partially inspired by by this a little bit if it's true i mean macbeth is is based off of like an old scottish tale um from the holland shed chronicles of macbethed but I, i'm just curious if like as a minor plot line like if that fed into it at all uh don't know for sure but it, it is kind of an interesting little like parallel that you'll find there and shakespeare pulled a lot of pulled a lot of things from real life in his plays um that distance between Catherine and Henry was very apparent a few years later when Anne Boleyn came to court. Anne Boleyn is going to be the primary focus of the next episode, so I'm not going to focus much on their relationship now, other than the fact that it began around this time. They flirted 
a lot and sent a lot of letters back and forth. And in 1527, Catherine was 42 years old and Henry never had his legitimate son. And he was obsessed with having a son and continuing the Tudor lineage, again, with that same fear that his father had. Uh, with the War of the Roses, the country was thrown into calamity and Anne Boleyn was younger and she told him that she could give him what he wanted, which was a son. He just had that whole pesky marriage thing in the way. And being a very Catholic man, he turned to the Bible for some guidance and found the answer to his problem in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, that reads, quote, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And of course, Henry took childless to mean sonless because that's the only children that mattered to him. And when we're already nitpicking the Bible anyway, we can interpret it to mean whatever we want. So this was his proof that his marriage to Catherine was against God. And by finding this passage in the Bible, it showed him that God was on his side. And he presented this quote evidence to Pope Clement VII. Of course, he did ignore Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 to 6, that states, if a brother dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family and her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name shall not be blotted out from Israel. So perhaps it wasn't the fact that he married his brother's widow, but when they had their first son, he was taken by the sin of pride, naming his son after himself instead of his brother. Or maybe because at the beginning of that verse, it does say like, if the brothers are living together. So I suppose they weren't living together. So um, maybe he could just ignore that. Although there was First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, that says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes. He also ignored Luke 16, verse 18, quote, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Although I do recognize that in the book of Matthew, when it comes to this part, they had it slightly different. And Matthew adds in that, you know, if it, it's okay, as long as it was for sexual immorality, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But I mean, if you just want to ignore all of that, there is always um, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, um, but I suppose that, you know, if the marriage wasn't valid ever because of her, her wedding to Arthur, then it would just be sexual immorality, which is, um, I mean, also frowned upon in, in the, in the Bible. Oh, are, are we not nitpicking and coming up with our own interpretations of the Bible? We're not doing that. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I was just following his lead because he is, he is the king and he leads by example. You know, I, I, I should know better as a woman. I shouldn't be reading the Bible and coming up with my own interpretation. Anyway, so in June 1527, Henry told Catherine that he thought that their marriage was not valid and uh, that their marriage was against God and like blah, 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 blah. And Catherine was not having this. And she started to come up with her own plan at how she could fight this. She wasn't just going to let her husband go that easily. Fortunately for her, she had time because Charles V's forces in Italy had recently captured Rome and uh, Pope Clement was a little busy but was being occupied and all. So um, Charles V was also Catherine's nephew. So, um, and at this point, like he was, again, the, the Roman emperor elect. And uh, I don't think that he, that he would like really allow 
the Pope to do much if he had a say in anything, especially the fact that he's like uh, occupying the Pope's city <laughs> at at this point. Um, you know, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, she writes a lot of letters to Charles about things that are happening during this time, and Charles definitely is on her side. So while that was happening, <laughs> they were all trying to figure out what to do in terms of the church. And on Henry's mind, the only thing on his mind was the divorce proceedings. And and so Cardinal Wolsey went to France with the intention of creating a council of cardinals who would basically stand in while the Pope was uh, incapacitated. They would sort of like run the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, wouldn't it be super convenient that while this was happening, they would most likely also approve of uh, Henry's divorce, right? But I guess Henry just wanted to like cover all of his bases. Because right after Wolsey left for France, Henry also sent a man named William Knight to the occupied city of Rome that had like just been sacked to basically ask Pope Clement if he could have permission from the church to commit bigamy. He basically was like, is it cool for me to have multiple wives if this divorce is not approved? I want to ask permission first. But he decided that that probably wasn't the best idea, at, like after he sent William Knight off. So he uh, sent a messenger to intercept William and, and stop that before he could he could make it to Rome, which I just I, I just find this hilarious. But um, I mean, honestly, all of it was kind of moot because that didn't happen. And then the Council of Cardinals also didn't happen. So instead... The Henry and Wolsey and, and others sort of started a smear campaign against Catherine, where they wrote a letter to Pope Clement VII saying like, dude, she has an STD and it's just horny all the time. And like, clearly she didn't get the STD from me because um, like, yeah, I've, I've had multiple lovers, but uh, th there's no way that she would have gotten that from me, uh, you know, just covering now all the bases with that whole like sexual immorality difference between the the book of John and the book of Matthew. I have not seen any documentary point that out. Um, probably because I'm the one who's gonna like nitpick, nitpick the Bible. Um, you know, a lot of other people won't do that. And I will. So funny side note as well. In addition to that, I always find interesting this is something that pops up a lot in like my witchcraft research that during this time period, women were the ones who were seen as the more uh, sexually ravenous gender, which I find really interesting, not just because like, that's what we think, but Henry has had multiple lovers at this point that are all very well documented, including the sister of one of his future wives. And uh, women were not allowed to have extramarital affairs because it would call into question the legitimacy of any children that they had. I mean, future wives of Henry are literally executed for that, well, one was executed for that, and um, other was uh, executed for claims like associated with ad adultery. But uh, straight up, adultery wasn't punishable by a queen yet. Not yet. So in April of 1528, Catherine met with Henry and told him that if he was to try and divorce her, then she wanted to do it before a judge. And she wanted it to be carried out in public so everyone could see how she was being treated. And then later on that year, the Pope dispatched Cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio to deliberate this case with Wolsey and tried to get it over with pretty much. And on October 27th, Catherine requested to have her confession with Cardinal Campeggio. And in that confession, she dropped a bomb. 
She said that Henry's grounds for divorce, based on the fact that she was Henry's brother's widow, was baseless. There was no case. Because although she said the vows, and sometimes they shared a bed together in that almost five months that they were married, in their few months of marriage, they never consummated the relationship. Which means that marriage was never actually legal. Now, is this the truth? I don't know. Uh, It's probably one of the most questioned things about Catherine to this day. Now, evidence and reports from that time seem to maybe back this up. The morning after their wedding, Juan Gamera, who was a servant for Catherine, said that Arthur arose early and um, he noticed that Catherine's ladies-in-waitings didn't seem happy. One of them named Francisca, who was Catherine's closest confidant, said that nothing happened the night before and that Catherine was very disappointed. Now, the other side that may be saying that she lied comes from some of the English men who saw Arthur the next morning, who said that he demanded ale because he had been in the midst of Spain. Get it? Because she's Spanish. Now, obviously, I wasn't there, but I have some thoughts. Uh, Of course, I have some thoughts. If it was that nothing happened, um, Arthur boasting the next day makes sense. There was so much emphasis on like, like masculinity and the like during the Tudor era. It was all about being virile and, you know, like conquering women and making sure that you had sons and like whatever. And if the marriage wasn't consummated, then it wasn't legal and it could be annulled and jeopardize the alliance with Spain and bring shame to his father and country. But we have to remember, like, even though times were different back then, Arthur was still 15. He was still a child. He probably like just finished puberty, you know, Uh, and he was probably very nervous. So I mean, I'm not going to judge or make fun of him about that. We we live in a lot more sexually free society nowadays. And 15 is still considered like young for a lot of people. Regardless, uh, this is what she said in confession, where Catherine, a very devout Catholic, most likely would not be lying. And and something else that completely blows my mind is apparently around the same time, Henry was saying that if he had a chance to marry again, and he could be sure that the marriage was good, and that he would for sure have sons, then he would choose Catherine again. So he still seems to love her and was literally only doing this out of the fear of the Tudor line dying, that same fear that his father had. And again, no woman had ever successfully ruled on her own. It would be embarrassing to go down in history with only two generations. But it still was not fair to Catherine, who had done nothing wrong, who had waited and fought for Henry, literally and figuratively, who had gone through the pain of multiple childbirths and miscarriages. And because of something that was like beyond her control she was just being pushed aside she was a warrior though and she wasn't going to go down without a fight because she's a badass bitch on june 21st 1529 the divorce court met and this was sensational people were obsessed now the way that the court was supposed to go that day is that henry was supposed to make his little brief statement uh and then sit down and then catherine was to stand up at her chair and also make a brief statement and then sit down and then, uh, you know, they would be interrogated and Henry would most likely win. So Henry stood up and made his brief statement. He was like, I love Catherine, but I have a troubled conscience that I have gone against God and I'm gone against God's will by marrying my brother's widow, according to that one part of the Bible, but not the other parts of the Bible that, that were mentioned. Just ignore those. Focus on the Leviticus part. But Catherine, who was supposed to just stand by her chair, sank to her knees in front of Henry and gave this speech, which, by the way, I would like to thank Claire Ridgway 
for having this whole transcript because other places that I looked in documentaries that I watched said like there's no transcript of this that exists. So Catherine kneels before Henry and said, quote, sir, I beseech you for all the love that hath been between us and for the love of God, let me have justice. Take of me some pity and compassion for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have here no assured friends and much less impartial counsel. Alas, sir, where have I offended you or what occasion of displeasure have I deserved? I have been to you a true, humble and obedient wife, ever comfortable to your will and pleasure that never said or did anything to the contrary thereof, being always well pleased and contented with all things wherein you had any delight or dalliance, whether it were little or much. I have never rugged in word or countenance and, or, or showed a visage or spark of discontent. I have loved all those whom ye loved only for your sake, whether I had cause or no, and whether they were my friends or enemies. This 20 years or more, I have been your true wife. And by me, ye have had diverse children, although it hath pleased the Lord to call them out of this world, which hath been no default in me. When ye had me at first, I take to God my judge. I was a true maid without touch of men. And whether it be true or no, I put it in your conscience. If there be any just cause by the law that ye can allege against me, either of dishonesty or any other impediment to banish and put me from you, I am well content to depart to my great shame and dishonor. And if there be none, then here I most lowly beseech you. Let me remain in my former estate. Therefore, I must humbly require you in the way of charity and for the love of God, who is the just judge, to spare me the extremity of this new court until I may be advised what way and order my friends in Spain will advise me to take. And if you will not extend to me so much impartial favor, your pleasure then be fulfilled, then to God I commit my cause. And then she got up off the floor, curtsied, and walked out and this stopped the divorce proceedings. His plan of attack in court was for Henry's lawyers to attack everything that was she was going to say. And she just like noped right the fuck out of court so that they couldn't do anything. And, and that was that. And now apparently Henry was pissed the entire time she was giving the speech. He was screaming at her to get up and stop acting like a victim and like this, that and the other. And, and all that that accomplished was to make Henry look cruel and brutal to his wife, who allegedly was saying that she had done nothing wrong. But like, let's dissect a little bit more of what she said. So she begins by asking for justice, meaning that he is being unjust and treating her poorly. She asks for pity and compassion, but I think what she's doing is trying to get pity from everyone watching. She reminds them that she has no friends and she isn't English and everyone is against her now because he's the king and no one is going to go against him. Then she asks him to directly tell her how she has wronged him because she has never done anything that she wasn't supposed to as a wife. She was obedient. She never spoke against him. She took interest in the things that he did. She reminded him that they had been married for 20 years with absolutely no issues and gave birth to many children. It wasn't her fault that they died. He could have said something about her, like not giving him children to continue his lineage, but she makes sure to point out that it is not her fault. Then she drops the bomb that she never slept with Arthur and even points out, you can believe me or not, I swear to God. So if you still don't believe me, then that's on you. And then I think she says my favorite part, which is the subtle nod 
to like if she keeps getting treated the way she's been treated maybe she needs to go get advice from her friends in Spain and by friends of Spain she of course means her nephew who is a formidable opponent and like the most powerful ruler in Europe at this time and like just took over the city of Rome recently and is also the holy Roman emperor like uh yeah and apparently while she was walking out Henry tried to get her to come back and she said quote on on it makes no matter for it is no impartial court for me therefore I will not tarry go on I fucking love her now Henry had no choice but to handle this himself with a pope who was like not gonna be sympathetic to him and this did not work out how he wanted to I mean obviously (laughs) he was spending like more and more time in his personal time with Anne Boleyn but Catherine was still the queen and she was still ruling over court and uh, apparently still even like sewed his shirts for him, which really pissed off Anne. And uh, during these years, Catherine wrote frequently to her nephew Charles and Pope Clement VII and requested that Charles's new ambassador, Eustace Shapley, go to the Pope and make sure that he never granted the divorce. The Pope, however, said that he wouldn't make up his mind one way or another unless they appeared in Rome. So in autumn of 1530, Cardinal Wolsey died. And a man named Thomas Cromwell ended up coming forward and sort of like replacing that advisor position that Wolsey had with Henry. And as an advisor, Cromwell was one of the ones that offered maybe Rome being so far away means that they didn't really have any jurisdiction over the English church. And uh, maybe they were corrupt. Uh, Just, you know, just just like Martin Luther said. And uh, maybe the English crown was more powerful. And if Henry just wanted to divorce, he could just grant one himself. And in the few years following, Henry VIII began the English Reformation without even fully realizing it. On May 31st, 1531, which is my birthday, uh, I don't appreciate that this happened on my birthday. Uh, Henry and his advisors meet with Catherine to try and reach a compromise, but Catherine won't budge and tells him that she follows the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And about a month and a half later, Catherine and Henry meet for the last time. And after this, she was basically banished to Moore's Palace in Hertfordshire. Not only did this separate her from Henry and the court and her duties as queen, but it also separated her from her daughter, who she also was never to see again. But it wasn't like she didn't have supporters. It wasn't like Henry sent her away and everyone was like, yeah, get rid of her. No, there were actually a lot of people in England who supported Catherine and didn't like how she was being treated, including a woman named Elizabeth Barton, who is known as the Holy Maid of Kent, or sometimes referred to as the Mad Maid of Kent. Elizabeth Barton was a prophetess and a seer. And I'm just wondering if we're devolving back into mythology. Because I'm having flashbacks of the Iliad and all of that malarkey. But in 1532, she said that if Henry were to go through and marrying Anne, that he would die soon after and that she saw the very ring of hell that he was to inhabit. And it was not good. But he put that prophecy to the test when he tried fate on January 25th, 1533. King Henry 
became a bigamist when he married Anne Boleyn. The Roman Catholic Church never granted him his divorce, and when Catherine heard the news, she said that she would rather be hacked to pieces than to accept the king's new marriage. And a couple months later, in May, Thomas Cranmer held court that officially annulled Catherine and Henry's marriage and retroactively sanctioned the marriage between Henry and Anne. When Catherine was told later on that year about the birth of Anne and Henry's child, Elizabeth, she retreated to her room and told them that if they wanted to take her, they would have to break down the door. And while she was in there, she weighed her options on whether she should stay in England or leave. But she didn't want to leave her daughter, especially now that, you know, according to Henry and his advisors, their marriage was illegitimate. They were divorced, meaning that their daughter Mary was illegitimate. And now Anne has had a daughter, Elizabeth, proving that she can have healthy children and might have sons to follow. So she is very concerned about the well-being for her daughter. And I think like there's also the part of it that she also didn't want to leave or go anywhere because she didn't want to give people the idea that she accepted the marriage to Anne. And I think that there was a little part of her that hoped that Henry would maybe change his mind. Um, but he didn't. It also didn't really seem like he harbored any negativity towards her. After his marriage, he offered her the title of Dowager Princess, um, which was basically saying that she was like a former consort uh, and widow, but by calling her princess and not queen, uh, it says that she was never queen. So it'd be Dowager Princess of Wales, which would say that she was the widow of Arthur, not the widow of King Henry. Uh, she, of course, refused. I mean, how much fuckery can one person deal with? But Catherine still didn't back down. Like, I would have given up a long time ago. Catherine still didn't back down and kept trying to fight. She kept trying to get the Pope to issue an official letter of condemnation of the marriage. And she had many people supporting her as evidenced by the crowd of people who would congregate around Elizabeth Barton when she talked about all the terrible things that would happen to the king. Um, something that she was uh, later executed for. She, she sounds really interesting and I want to research more about her. So if you want an episode about Elizabeth Barton, if I can find information about her, I will do it. Just let me know. Um, and then with, with Catherine like still causing issues, uh, Anne and Henry got to the point where they just started attacking her, like not physically abusing her, but she had no money. She had no supporters in the court. She was moved whenever Henry wanted her to move. She had to ask permission to have visitors and go anywhere. There was a time when her daughter Mary got really sick and Catherine asked to see her. And I think like in one of the most cruel things that he has done to her, he refused to let them see each other. Um, knowing how many children Catherine had lost and how sick Mary was to refuse to let them be with each other is incredibly cruel. I mean, he said that the reason that he did that was because he was worried that like, Catherine would come and like kidnap Mary and they would flee to Spain and it would like start a war going and seeking the help from Charles V and whatever, whatever. Um, so, I mean, I get it, but th that's not an excuse. And Charles wouldn't have helped her anyway because he had his own political malarkey going on and he was planning on attacking Fran France and didn't want to piss off England enough to make them ally with France. So like, why would he start a war over this, you know? Um, but I think like one of the saddest things about this is that it seemed like Catherine still loved him in 
January 1536, she was very ill and she wrote him a letter. This is actually the last letter that she wrote him. And it says, quote, my dear Lord, King and husband, the hour of my death now drawing on the tender love I owe you forceth me, my case being such to commend myself to you and to put you in remembrance with a few words of the health and safeguard of your soul, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters and before the care and pampering of your body, for which you have cast me into many calamities and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything, and I wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest, I commend unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father unto her as I have heretofore desired. I entreat you also on behalf of my maids to give them marriage portions, which is not much, they being but three. For all my other servants, I solicit the wages due to them in a year more, lest they be unprovided for. Lastly, I make this vow that mine eyes desire you above all things. Catherine the Queen. So in her last moments, she's telling him that she loves him. She's telling him that she's concerned for his soul. She's telling him that she forgives him for every single thing that he has done to her. And she prays that the Lord will forgive him as well. And then she says that she desires to see him, that like her dying wish is to see him one last time. Now, uh, apparently, um, she was very sick at the beginning of January. On January 5th, she seemed to have improved a little bit. But by the night of January 6th, she was declining again. She was up all night asking the time and trying desperately to make it to daybreak so she could receive the sacrament and spent the rest of the day praying, asking those presents to pray for her soul and saying that she hoped that God would pardon Henry for what he did to her and will lead him quote to the true road and give him good counsel and she died on January 7th 1536 it was suspected by many that she was slowly poisoned over a long period of time but most likely she died of cancer Uh, an autopsy was performed on her within eight hours of her death the report by Eustace Shapway read quote The queen died two hours after midday and eight hours afterwards, she was opened by command of those who had charge of it on the part of the king. And no one was allowed to be present, not even her confessor or physician, but only the candle maker of the house and one servant and a companion who opened her. And although it was not their business and they were no surgeons, yet they have often done such a duty, at least the principal who on coming out told the Bishop of Landliff, her confessor, but in great secrecy as a thing that would cost his life, that he had found the body and all the internal organs as sound as possible except her heart, which was quite black and hideous. And even after he had washed it three times, it did not change color. He divided it through the middle and found the interior being the same color, which also would not change on being washed, and also some black round thing which clung closely to the outside of the heart. On my man asking the physician if she had died of poison, he replied that the thing had was too evident by what had been said to the bishop, her confessor, and if that had not been disclosed, the thing was sufficiently clear from the report and circumstances of the illness. So, again, I mean, a lot of people believe that she was poisoned, but it seemed like she died of cancer of the heart or cancer of somewhere else that went metastatic, especially with the tumor that was found on her heart. And I'm saying tumor based off the description of like the round mass attached to her heart. But I find it like really sad and like 
if this was in a book, like a fantasy book, then it would be explained as like, her heart could only take so much like she was heartbroken for so long that her heart literally turned black you know like it sounds like a like a tragic story or like a villain's origin arc but like Catherine never would have become the villain you know and when she died Henry celebrated Eustace Shapley, who, I mean, I will say did not support Anne and wrote a lot of potentially slanderous things about her that we'll touch on in the next episode, um, wrote to Charles V after her death, quote, you could not conceive the joy that the king and those who favor his concubinage, um, meaning his marriage to Boleyn, have shown at the death of the good queen, meaning Catherine. Uh, especially the Earl of Wiltshire and his son, who said it was a pity that the princess, Mary, did not keep company with her. The king, on the Saturday he heard the news, exclaimed, quote, God be praised that we are free from all suspicion of war, and that the time had come that he would manage the French better than he had done hitherto, because he would now do whatever he wanted from a fear of lest he should ally himself with your majesty, meaning Charles V, seeing that the cause which disturbed your friendship was gone. On the following day, Sunday, the king was clad all over in yellow from top to toe, except for a white feather that he had in his bonnet, and the little bastard, meaning Elizabeth, his daughter with Anne, was conducted to mass with trumpets and other great triumphs, and after dinner the king entered the room in which the ladies dance, and there did several things like one transported with joy. And then King Henry VIII threw a tournament in celebration of her death, and when she was buried, there were the symbols of Arthur, her first husband, not Henry's sigils. And there was an open crown, not a closed one, pushing that she was a princess dowager and not ever a queen. And Henry did not fucking deserve her. And she was always too good for him. But, 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 but the poetic justice is um, that in that tournament that he threw after her death, he did get super injured. Um, so, so like karma a little bit there but we'll talk more about that next time because that has a lot to do with like uh Anne Boleyn obviously um it was after the death and Anne Boleyn was married to him so that is uh what one of the things we're going to talk about next time I really really love Catherine of Aragon in case you couldn't tell but it's really frustrating that without deep historical research into her life and the very few like truly historical accounts of her life that I could find that were only about her and not about all of Henry's wives where she's mostly eclipsed, the main information that you can find is about her very brief marriage to Arthur, uh, the struggles that she had after her death, and then the first two years of her marriage, including the Battle of Flodden, and then her pregnancies and what happened when they were trying to get a divorce. And then there's like very little of her after that. They were married for 23 years. She helped him. She literally fought for him. She won battles for him. She got pregnant often, at least six times. But some historians speculate as many as 10 or 11 times. And went through heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. She had miscarriages and stillbirths and her baby's dying. I mean, I personally have had one miscarriage and I didn't even want to be pregnant at the time when it happened. And it emotionally destroyed me. I could not imagine the pain that she felt having wanted these children and having to suffer all the things that she suffered but for like that to be the main thing that we know about her here's the thing about her and 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 about historical 
historically most women um that fucked up history rant moment for the day if you thought that you weren't gonna get one you were wrong um so this is fueled by listening to hamilton the other day because i love musicals in history even though this one is not accurate at all but researching this episode is still very much on my mind when some of the songs from hamilton came on and if you haven't watched it i won't spoil it but uh, eliza hamilton alexander hamilton's wife has a line where she is upset and she says i'm erasing myself from the narrative let future historians wonder how eliza reacted and then in the finale she says i put myself back in the narrative and the way that it's written makes it sound like she made this intentional choice to not be a part of history for those like seven or so years between the stuff that happened where she took herself out and Alexander Hamilton's death. Um, but that is not how history works. Uh, again, just like with Catherine, unless you do deep historical research into her, you're not going to know what she did in that time period. Uh, Eliza Hamilton is important because she was married to Alexander Hamilton and had his children. And Catherine American is important because she was wife of Henry VIII and gave birth to his children, whether they survived or not. But she ceases to exist. And for the bulk of their marriage, I mean, from like 1516, when she gave birth to Mary to 1527, when everything like fully started with Anne Boleyn, I could barely find anything about her. She ceases to exist. She is a shadow with no personality and no life. And her purpose after that was like only as a catalyst of ripping England apart through the formation of the Church of England. And there it's so frustrating. And like, I just keep thinking of this book that I read. Um, there is this concept that some historians talk about, especially historians who are interested in histories of marginalized people. So people who focus on like critical race theory, people focus on black history, people focus on women's history, LGBTQ plus history. Um, there's this concept about silences in history and intentionally created silences through intentional erasure or at just as a reflection of the times. Um, the book that I read that sort of like introduced me to this, I mean, complex, but like also like really obvious topic was um, Trulo's book called uh, Silencing the Past. And again, like I said, like this isn't something that's specific only to women's history, but to specifically talk about women's history for a moment, um, like women up until the last 50 years or so, when we see the second movement of feminism in the early 70s, generally weren't deemed as historically important. And Catherine is like very much a victim of erasure, whether it was intentional or not. But Catherine was tenacious and well-spoken and devoutly Catholic. And like so outspoken that she annoyed the ambassadors who wanted her to be seen, not heard. She supported scholars like John Leland, like Thomas Lincare and, and Richard Pace. She supported the Spanish humanist uh, Juan Luis Vives, who in the 1520s wrote the education of a Christian woman that argued that women should be educated. That is feminist as fuck. This book focused mostly on Mary and her education and how important that was. And the book was dedicated to Catherine. She became a patron for the University of Oxford in Cambridge. She was this great queen who saw over court and wasn't able to have children that Henry desired and only gave him a healthy daughter. And they couldn't possibly have a female ruler but they would ally with Spain that had a female ruler, but it, it works for them, not for us. 
Um, and just for that, he could push her aside, even though they still seem to love each other. But because Anne Boleyn is a more sensational figure, seeing that her marriage to Henry like tore apart England, um, I mean, it caused like essentially a religious civil war in the years following, um, Catherine becomes eclipsed and overlooked. And I didn't know much about her until I started researching myself. And um, there's still a lot that I don't know about her. And I'm going to keep researching it because she was amazing and deserves for people to know her story. And that is all for today. It would not be after history if I didn't end it in a rant, right? So thank you so much for listening today. Uh, if you like what you heard and want to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or joining my Patreon. I will see you next time when we will talk about Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII. I think in Catherine's story, like she's kind of portrayed as a villain, but I don't think that there are any villains. because history is not black and white. I am hoping that I'm going to get that out to you next Monday. I've been pretty good at like trying to upload every week. Uh, but I'm heading into finals week here and I have a big assignment that I haven't even looked at yet. So we're hoping that I'm going to give it to you on uh, on whatever next Monday is. But uh, I am a one woman show <laughs> researching and recording and editing all of myself. So I'm going to do my best. But if you don't get it on Monday, you'll get it soon after. And remember, friends, history may be watching you, so don't fuck it up. And God damn it, women can rule just as well as men. Did we learn nothing from Boudicca? Bye.